Welcome to Creativity School. This is the podcast all about how to tap into your creativity and get your greatness out of you and into the world. I'm your host, Grace Chan, and each week we'll get lessons on how to start the thing you've always wanted to start and learn the tips and strategies you need for how to be awesome at it. If you're one of those people that feels a calling to do something, make something, or be something more, if you want to start shining your light and share it with the world, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode eight of Creativity School. I am so glad you're here listening today, and I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with my very, very good friend, Avita Castine. But first, before we get into the episode, I wanted to share a review somebody left me that was so kind. Their name is First Subscriber, and they said, so genuine and inspirational. I'm so glad I found this podcast. Grace is so natural, and it's such an inspiring message. Can't wait to hear more episodes. Hey, first subscriber, whoever you are, thank you so much for taking the time to leave me that super nice review. And for the rest of you out there who have left me reviews, thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate you so much. It just takes a few minutes to leave the show a little love. It really does help with getting a new show off the ground. And so if you took the time to do that, I really appreciate you so much. And of course, I got to give a quick shout out to my friends in the Creativity School with Grace Chan Facebook group. I need to give a shout out today to Nairi. I have been following Nairi on Instagram for a few years now, and she is a fantastic illustrator. I love her style. It is so cute and so whimsical. And she shared recently in the group, that she recently got the chance to do a mini collaboration with a brand called Sadaf Foods. And she felt like this was a really fun, exciting step for her because this is a brand that is very well known and widely recognized in the Middle Eastern community. As somebody who is a giant fan of international grocery stores, I am very familiar with Sadaf Foods. I love their products. And Nairi, I am so excited for you that you did this collaboration with a brand you love. That is so exciting. And I really cannot wait to see where this is going to take you and what other cool stuff you end up doing please come and join us at our Facebook group. Everybody in there is so nice and you can search on Facebook for us. It's Creativity School with Grace Chan or you can just click the link in the show notes. Oh, you guys, today's conversation is so good. I know, I feel like I say that every week, but this conversation is so, so good. My friend Davida Castine is an incredibly talented filmmaker and director and she's also a photographer and she's also a writer i mean she's so multi-talented but she has skyrocketed in her career as a filmmaker and i've known her for 10 years but my gosh has it been fun to watch her career grow and grow and grow and this conversation is amazing because i find it so fascinating to see this common thread through all these stories people are sharing on the show. Even though the creative output might look different, the process to create is all the same. The process of being brave enough to create the work is the same. The process of putting the work out there and overcoming your fears is the same. So this interview is so good because what we talk about is so applicable to any creative output, but particularly about telling your story, owning your identity, and being unapologetically yourself in your work. And we really dig into the power of how incredibly effective and deep your work can be if you are unapologetically and authentically yourself. I love that we talk so much in this conversation about owning your story, embracing your story, 
embracing every part of you and not judging it as good or bad because it is your truth. Who you are, all of you, it is your truth. And when you can channel that fearlessly into your work, your work will be that much more powerful. The other really cool thing about Evita's story is that even though she went to film school, she does not believe you have to follow that same path. She believes you can be a very effective storyteller and filmmaker without going to film school. And she has created so much amazing work for clients like Spotify and musicians like Cody Chestnut and Fox Studios. She's done work for major clients like that using her iPhone. Yes, you heard that right. She did all that work and more using her iPhone. You know, I am all about being scrappy in your work. Don't let not having money or resources hold you back from making the stuff that your soul wants to make. There is always a way to figure out how to do that. And hey, Avita just picked up her iPhone and started filming some really cool stuff. She put it out there and these incredible companies came knocking. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Avita and find it as inspirational as I did. Hi, Evita. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Grace. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited that you're here because you are such an amazing creative person. And I just say creative person because you're good at so many things. Like you're this multi-hyphenate creative person. You're a writer, a producer, a director, an actor, and a photographer. So uh, I'm just really excited to dig into your journey and all the amazing stuff you've been up to. Oh, thank you, Grace. The first question I always ask everybody is, what did you want to be when you grew up? What I wanted to be when I grew up is I wanted to be a teacher. I used to practice with these Cabbage Patch dolls I had. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a, a concert pianist because I, I played piano. So I dreamed about those things. Do you feel like that influences your work today in any way? Yeah, when I think about it, because I interact with people a lot when I'm working and I think that's all that teaching is and I feel like I definitely feel like I have like a, a musical approach to my works so I think that you know playing the piano helps shape my brain or how I think or see things. I can totally see that connection by the way because when I look at your directing work the music and the way you're cutting everything completely is so unique. Oh. I love it. <laughs> Thank you Grace. What did your parents want you to be when you grew up? Um, my dad wanted me to be a petroleum engineer, have a Harvard MBA, and work like on an oil rig in the North Sea somewhere. Um, that is so oddly specific. <laughs> well, he got very deep. Like he told me, like when I was in third grade, and I walked in, he was playing. Um, so he was playing the school song, and he was telling me one day I was going to be a Texas Aggie. Like he had it all mapped out. Whereas my mom was kind, was more, you know, that feminine, like go with the flow type of thing. So I didn't feel pressure from her, but definitely, you know, that's what my dad thought I was going to be. And was it, you know, money? He wanted you to have financial stability. Well, I think there was that. And there was the idea that he thought that there should be more women and people of color in, in sciences and in engineering. And yeah, that I would always be okay. And also, I was really good at math. Mm. And somehow, he had this thing about math. So he had this idea that because I did so well in math that I would go beyond him, and he's an engineer. So he just saw, like, the stars in the sky when it came to, like, me and math and engineering, you know? So it was like it was like a for real dream he had. But you were a child actress, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> so how did that happen then? I think it's because of the school I was at. There was just um, – a lot of arts programs like music and I was doing music outside of school and so in elementary school they just had musicals all the time and I was in Chicago and that's like a real theater heavy city so it was just something that morphed but I think my parents were more like oh it's a hobby you know it's what she needs to do to be well-rounded to do her college applications 
You had shared with me earlier that your parents grew up in the Jim Crow era Mm -hmm. and that they had sacrificed a lot Mm -hmm. for you and your brother to be where you were in that life, you know, growing up and studying and maybe becoming a petroleum engineer. So now that you're this incredibly prolific creative person and artist, what do they think now? I think my dad was just like, it's out of my hands now. (laughs) Um, I think he's just more like, if he's older now, so I think he's just happy when he sees me happy. And they're a lot more supportive. They're very supportive of me now. However, it was a journey getting to that. But yeah, to your point, like I remember growing up, my mom saying she wanted to do everything that Jim Crow wouldn't let her do. Mm. And so she passed it on to me, which was like, I was doing stuff like swimming, tennis, like looking back at it now, I can see why they made the decisions they made because they were very big on education because when they were growing up, they were always told about what was not available to them education-wise. So I think that they just always went out of their way to sort of provide some sort of space that was different than the limitations that were put on them. Wow. The parents they get her, it's a total lotto ticket, you know, and it's incredible. (laughs) It is, right? (laughs) And it's incredible that they took a really hard experience and then channeled it into their parenting to intentionally provide you guys with more opportunities than they had, which really is not very different from my family as well, because my parents are Korean immigrants and they came here with nothing but $500 in their Mm, pocket. Wow. You have so many accolades. Like, I'm just going to read a couple of them. You uh, received the special recognition and directing a narrative film award at the Black Star Film Festival. You received the audience award at the Diversity in Cannes Film Festival. You've won audience and social impact awards at the One Lens Film Festival. I mean, like I can just go on and on and on. You have just been getting so much recognition for your work as a director and filmmaker. Can you share how you got to that point? From, you know, the girl who wanted to be a teacher and loved music to all of that stuff. Yeah, well, I think... You know, when I moved to California, I was working at a a nonprofit that developed screenwriters outside of the United States. And so I started traveling with them because the whole concept behind the organization was to preserve stories that would be forgotten. Um, Mostly, they were stories about, I guess you could call it like before the Berlin Wall fell. So I was spending time in Eastern Europe and I was spending time with people who were constructing their life stories into screenplays. And I think I was really, you know, I wasn't doing anything artistic at the time, but I was really affected by it because I started seeing how someone would share their life and turn it into a screenplay. And then I would go to like a film festival a couple years later and see their story and their their whole life would be transformed because at the time too, the organization I was with was helping these emerging economies develop a film community. So I think I was just really impacted by seeing these personal stories and, and seeing growth and seeing how it can change not only one person's life, but the effect that your story, telling your story can have, like your story can affect change. And a lot of these stories were really specific and some of them were very traumatic. Like I'd never had that experience, I guess, growing up in the United States. And I started, I guess, having like a, a, like a lot of appreciation for life and, and where I was, because sometimes when they would share the stories with me, they would share them and just like, as if they were going to the grocery store, you know, Mm. and in this position, I would spend a lot of time, you know, like months or years helping people to shape their stories. So I think that started planting the seed. And then when I, um, I started with this really amazing teacher, I had, um, really great teachers. I started with this teacher named Bill Duke. And he used to say, if you were a woman of color and an actress, he felt sorry for us. Mm. We just acted and that we had to learn how to bring our stories to life. So I made this short film, girl. And it is so funny when I look at it now, but I made it in my apartment and then BET picked it up and they screened it. Wait, what? Yes. How did BET even find your film? Through social media because I was friends with the, I didn't even know it. I was friends with the programmer from, I guess, BET for that, like the short film festival show they had. And, um, we would just like talk about random things. Like I didn't even know he was, you know, in film. But I think I like posted about, um, you know, doing this short film. And 
it was so ridiculous when I look back on it. Like, I made it in my apartment, and it was based off a story that, you know, my friend told me. They sent me a check for $500, and I was, wow. yeah, I was so beside myself because I was like, I just got $500 for, like, doing this little short, and I really wanted to impress my teacher, you know, and, um, and then I just felt good that he was proud of me, so then I decided, well, if I'm going to be a director and take it seriously, I want to go to the best film school for directing, so... I was kind of scared to apply because everyone would say that they got in maybe like on their third or fourth try. <laughs> but um, I got in on my first try and I started, um, I had just like a lot of great teachers. The very first teacher I had, her name was Amanda Pope. She had told me like filmmaking, it's about honesty and you have to decide how honest you want to be about yourself. And I remember sitting there like, oh, like, I don't know, because I feel like maybe before I hid a lot of my um, stronger feelings and she kind of like pressed me to be more open so that when I got into later um, semesters, like it, it built something in me where I got really confident with my voice so that when people challenged it or put it down, I would feel bad, but inside I would just be like, that's okay, because anytime I'm being me, it's okay, you know? Mm, that's deep right there, mm -hmm. what you just said. Anytime I'm being me, it's okay. Right, and I and I kind of started noticing the lengths that people would go to to make you not be okay, and I started thinking of myself as powerful because I was thinking, well, people are going to spend time and energy trying to make me feel bad about myself. <laughs> there has to be something there. Wow. I, I started noticing a difference between when a teacher is cultivating you, like the earlier experiences I had, and maybe when someone is doing the opposite. Like teachers, you're saying. I, I assume students, but it was teachers. Yeah, teachers. I mean, I can understand why. When you're a teacher, you want to seem like an authority. And if things have already been, like, always been done a certain way in a certain system like Hollywood... And also, I'll be honest, like, I don't think a lot of people sometimes have, like, a lot of different international experience. Mm. So sometimes they were looking at it from, like, for instance, just even filmmakers of color. Like, we didn't, there weren't, they weren't showing a lot of films by people of color. It was just this certain group of people. And it was kind of expressed that that was the only way. Yeah, I think because the earlier teachers I had had shown me all kinds of different films. I even had a teacher... Her name is Gail Katz. She used to take me to art exhibits by made by artists of color. And she didn't have to do that. I just had like teachers in my first couple of years that just saw who I was and would like take me places, give me books. So it just kind of, it just affirmed things about me so that when I got into later situations where people maybe were scared of it and wanted to like negate it, I just felt like, like, this is me. You can't, you can't change me. Like, I wasn't, like, confrontational about it in a way. I would just be like, that's okay. I, I'm only going to be here for a couple more semesters. Let me just learn what I need to learn, you know? But, like, it was a good experience overall. I don't mean to paint it in that way. But in terms of, like, I guess for your audience and in, in learning about how to be, like, a creative, I think it's important to embrace who you are, embrace your experiences, and know that because you experience it, it has value. That just gave me chills because I had a very similar epiphany with doing this podcast, mm. where if you're going to come at me with criticism, or even not even just the podcast, but you know, if I post something on social media where it's truly authentically being me, or I say something on this podcast and you have something bad to say about it, I'm like, but it's me. Mm. This is my truth. So if you have a problem with it, like, oh, well, because right. this is my truth. I can't change that. Right. Like, I love that post that you wrote about um, Crazy Rich Asians. Mm. Yeah, I loved it because I feel like there's, I think, I, and I've been quoting Jordan Diaz a lot lately, but he was just talking about, like, when you don't see yourself growing up, you start to believe you're a vampire or, or people can see you as a monster because just like a, a vampire doesn't have a reflection. When you mm. don't grow up with, like, a reflection of yourself, people tend to look at you that way or you even might like see yourself that way because you don't have that image. And so when you were writing about it, it just spoke to me on so many deep levels because I guess like we grew up in the same time. Like I didn't remember seeing, like they weren't showing us Wong Kar Wai, you know, when I was growing up or even in film school, you know what I mean? It just touched me very deeply. Like what you said, I just thought it was really important. 
Thank you for saying that. For those listening, Crazy Rich Asians was a really big cultural moment for Asian Americans and Asians worldwide, really, because there is just so little representation of Asians in the media and in pop culture. And to have a film where the entire cast was Asian, it was really groundbreaking. And so there was a lot of things people in the Asian community were sharing about the movie and what it meant to them and how meaningful it was. And so Evita is referencing the post that I shared. So thank you for bringing that up. And, you know, it was hard for me to write that because I was very vulnerable and I shared things in that post that I don't even know if I've said it out loud, like in a public forum like that before, just feeling so alone and being lunch in the library by myself and just feeling so invisible, you know, and did you see the movie to all the boys I've loved before? No, but now I'm going to. Okay, that's another groundbreaking film because it was the first time in America, at least, that we've seen an Asian-American heroine in a rom-com. And it's based off a trilogy of books by a Korean-American author named Jenny Han. Mm -hmm. And that movie spoke to me so deeply because, I mean, obviously just the subject matter, being the first Asian-American heroine in a rom-com, all that I loved it. But there's this theme that kept coming up with the character, and it was that she's the shy, quiet, invisible Asian girl. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, that was so me. Like nobody knew who I really was because I felt like I was so afraid to be myself and to have a voice in school. Mm -hmm. So I love that you are using your work now Mm. to give yourself a voice and for other women, especially people of color as well. I really want to start digging into that more. But before we go there, I do have a question for you. Your Instagram bio says, I translate emotions. What does that mean? (laughs) I started noticing with my work that I asked myself if there wasn't a word, like if the word love didn't exist, how would I explain this? So a lot of times, like when I'm working with people and they're telling me their story, I feel what they're feeling a lot of times. And it's like just using a different part of my body. Like, for instance, like if I'm prepping for a job, there's like a lot of thinking involved, you know. But then when I'm actually in the job, I spend a lot of time just being present to look at what are they saying to me because I think that informs the work or the visual otherwise I feel like me personally that you get just like a lot of cool shots people in the world we we like stories and we connect to stories because it's a way of telling a story about an emotion or a feeling so when I think about myself as a storyteller I just started realizing that all I was doing was telling a story about an emotion, but I feel like a lot of people, because of the way we were raised and just our culture, we don't have like a lot of emotional intelligence. Like a lot of people just shy away from expressing their real feelings or even feeling. However, I forced myself to just like really study emotions and and just knowing that I was empathic, just letting that gift sort of live and, and not hiding it. That's why I just started just being really blunt about it, just being like, I translate emotions because I was like, what do I really do the whole time or all day? I study emotions. I relate to that. I was Mm -hmm. like, I wish I wrote that. (laughs) I wish I wrote I translate emotions because as an artist and creative, I feel like that is exactly what I'm doing as well. And you spoke to this idea of making things that are just flashy. And I think that for you and for me both, adding that emotion to our work creates depth. Mm. It's more than just being a pretty picture or a pretty movie. There's an emotional meaning behind it. Mm. So I love that you so succinctly wrote that in your bio. I was like, darn, I wish I wrote that. (laughs) I heard you say in another interview, the more specific your story is, the more universal it is. Mm -hmm. And you've touched upon this idea already in this interview. But can you elaborate on this? Because to me, it's almost contradictory. It's like... To me, it almost seems like, well, if your story is so specific, how could it be relatable to other people? But it is. Yeah. Like some of the most important films that were made, even if it's just like Martin Scorsese and, you know, his first film or or Spike Lee. What was there was a movie that was done in India that was really famous. Slumdog Millionaire. Exactly. Slumdog Millionaire. I'll say it in just the way, maybe way the human brain works, if I just do it from a technical aspect, <laughs> is that the brain naturally looks for stories. And if it, it tries to make up a story and if it doesn't have the information, it just fills it in. And so since we've all had different experiences, we'll fill it in with our perception. And so 
if you do a really general story, um, sometimes people walk out the movie and have all different ideas about like what the film was about. Mm. But the more specific you are and your storytelling, the brain is like, it just connects to the story. It won't fill in information. And then just being culturally specific and you're telling a story, I feel like it just must be some universal law that everyone understands it. Because like when I saw the movie, The Godfather, for instance, you know, it's about an Italian-American family. They were immigrants. He wants the best for his son. He doesn't want him to go into this criminal lifestyle. He wants him to be a lawyer. I feel like me and you kind of just describe similar life stories. Totally, yes. Relationships with parents, you know? So like any culture, you like you can relate to that. And the fact that he told it in his context is interesting. It is. And I just feel like this idea, the more specific your story is, it really just gives us as people who want to express ourselves through our creativity, it gives us more reason to just authentically be ourselves, authentically express ourselves. Like everything you've talked about so far with the work you were doing while you were in school, like even if teachers didn't understand it, mm -hmm. it was just you telling your very specific story. And that is what is relatable to everybody else. Because, you know, the other thing is, is that the stories that we create and the art that we make isn't for everybody. Mm. And, and that's, I think, what you're talking to about if you just have a general story, it's like blanded down. Mm -hmm. It's super, super blanded down. But I, I also think that there's something to be said about people when you aren't open to hearing someone's story. Because I think that was a lot that what happened to me. And I feel like the newer generations are like changing their mindset, you know, but I had an epiphany about what privilege was in school that I, I think I knew it in a theoretical way before, but I remember sitting there and he was telling me about what I should do. And I thought, oh, he thinks that I made the movie for him. Mm. Yeah. I was like, he didn't consider that I was making it for like me or my friends or the women that was about, you know what I mean? And I think that when one gets in this idea about like what the world should look like or what people should look like is when you, I guess maybe you don't understand or, or don't see it, you know what I mean? And I think that to be honest, because the history of our cinema or entertainment was based primarily made by white males, that that became the language of cinema. It became like a shared vocabulary amongst people. So that when outsiders come in and they're like, oh, this is how I make film in China or, you know, as African-American growing up with people who told stories very like enthusiastically and verbally, you know, a song and dance and having a musicality and that becomes infused with your work and you're coming at a different way. And the established vocabulary that was like created by the establishment They'll kind of look at it and like pat you on the head and be like, they're there. <laughs> but I feel like because our world is changing and I don't know, honestly, too, like what you said with social media and, and people going across borders to like reach out. I feel like there's like um, a way of understanding because I feel like there's so many films or just art that I enjoy from other countries that I'm not looking at it like this wasn't made in the tradition I'm used to. It's a curiosity, more of like, oh, what is that about? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's just maybe us, maybe it is, maybe it is, it is this paradigm that shifting that you were talking about, about moving from this place of fear to openness. Yeah, because it's really easy to judge something you don't understand as being bad. Like you had said, even just with professors at school. Yeah, maybe I think that might be human nature for us to be conditioned maybe at first to be to be afraid of things that we don't know or understand. It is. And I think that tying it back to creativity, we spoke about this in the last episode I did with Esther Loopstra. And just in general, I think the foundation for being the most creative person you can be is having a sense of openness, open mindedness. That's so true. That's another thing that I learned as well. I don't know. That's why I kind of feel like I don't think that you need to go to film school or any kind of institution to be an artist. However, the thing that helped a lot with being at, you know, an institution or a film school was I had my teacher, Pablo, he had this philosophy about not judging things. Mm. And he had this thing about allowing. And I used to ask him all the time, Grace, because I would get sick of hearing my classmates 
Because, you know, you, you'd make these things and think that you were going to get an Academy Award for it. And pretty much everyone made films their first year about suicide. And it was just so important, you know? <laughs> like, everyone did them. And I would be sitting there listening to them like, oh, my God, you're making me want to just, like, jump off a bridge listening to you, right? <laughs> and he would just say to me, oh, Avita, things take time to manifest. And you have to allow them. I made it a practice not to judge. He just said it so simply that in the moment, I was like, well, I'm going to try that. But then to go on a really quick tangent, what advice would you give to people who can't or don't go to film school? I think just start making things because before I went to film school, the thing that inspired me to go was just, was having like a little bit of success making a short film. With the BET video or yeah. with something else? Yeah. It was doing that video, but there's there's a lot of examples of filmmakers who didn't go to film school, like um, Ava DuVernay, and I think it's just a matter of watching a lot of films, reading a lot of books, and having a life, and not being afraid to make mistakes in life. I kind of joke about it, because I had teachers that were talking to me about being honest, and stepping into conflict, and um, being out in the world, and just being really messy about it. And I remember just thinking, like, why? Like, why would someone do that? You know what I mean? But it gives you things to write about. It gives you things to talk about. Like mm. the things or the challenges that you have that you grow from, it gives you a basis to create. So anyone who I feel like is thinking about or wants to tell stories or become a director in any capacity, I was making stuff with my iPhone. Like literally, I think I just having a punk rock attitude. One of my mentors was a musician who recorded this album on a four track and started a bidding war with labels that were going to pay him a million dollars just if he would re-record it on just like high-end equipment and oh my god yeah and I think seeing him and he really encouraged me like where he would say the creativity is yours that's what people are coming for so always make sure you own your work this is so inspiring to me because one of the things I talk about on the show a lot is don't let not having money hold you back from making the thing your soul wants to make. Mm -hmm. Don't let not being able to afford going to school or not being able to buy the best camera gear be the thing that holds you back. To your point, you know, you know people who have made incredible things mm -hmm. with it and yourself mm -hmm. with just what you had. Also, does you remind me of that too, is like surrounding yourself, finding other creative people, it doesn't matter what discipline they're in. People sometimes joke and call artists freaks or whatever when they see them out, you know, but I feel like those are the people you should gravitate towards because <laughs> they just always have new ideas and they're not, as, they're not afraid. And that's how, I mean, I feel like that's what helped me because I, I grew up in um, like a suburban environment and I feel like coming to LA and, and being around all kinds of different artists who are just being really punk about it. I, guess, I think because in our pre-conversation we were talking about fear I didn't have that fear of like, what if it's bad at the time, you know? That wasn't the thing that stopped me because the people around me literally would like cut up their clothes. Like anything that they could find to be creative, they did. And I just feel like having that energy helps you just keep creating things without the idea of something being good or bad. Going back to your storytelling now, how does being a woman and a woman of color influence your storytelling and the work that you're making? Oh, wow. It influences me a lot because I realized that like it was the perspective I had growing up. And since my art is coming from me and my experience and how I see the world, it just became very obvious to me that my life experiences were shaping it because I've like just sometimes my very existence, you know, um, causes things to happen. You know what I mean? What do you mean by that? I feel like, you know, like when I was mentioning earlier that especially in this country, a lot of things are rooted in the perspective of the white male. I had to grow up navigating different worlds, being a person of color, because like my mom and dad, like they used to say things to me, which I thought was hard. Like I would tell them like, oh, racism that isn't a thing anymore. And like, this was the eighties, but kids were still calling me the N word. You know what I mean? Wow. And I think because I was different, I had different hair and I was kind of like, didn't have a click I belonged to. I just became someone who was very observant and, and very sensitive. And I, and I know what it feels like to be on the outside so that when I approach my work, I don't, I never go for the mainstream or the first thing, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, built into my DNA because I think about what my experiences were and, and then it starts informing the work that way. And also because 
it's just me. You know what I mean? Like, I find it difficult to be something that I'm not. It's like something inside of me that just like, it just like won't do it. It's so strange. It like goes into freeze mode. It gets very resistant. But at the same time, because I was aware of gender and race growing up being different because people did tease me or ostracize me because of my race or just things about me that were different. You know what I mean? I mean, because I had that experience, it's like when you're part of the mainstream and you didn't have that, I I feel like you don't notice differences. That makes sense. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier before we started recording this idea of being a participant versus being an observer. And when you're the observer outside of what's considered, I guess, the dominant culture or the norm, like you get to notice a lot of things that you might not notice if you're partaking. No, exactly. Because for instance, you know, if you just look at like a school curriculum, like even in elementary school, and you learn American history, just the way they teach certain things, you know what I mean? Like I remember I was in fourth grade and the teacher said something like Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. (laughs) And I raised my hand. I said, my daddy told me the only reason why he did that was to save the union. He didn't really care about slaves. And she was like, um, yes, that is also true. Um, however, <laughs> he did sign the Emancipation Proclamation, you know? I started looking at history as being a narrative and whoever was in power is controlling it. And I started being curious like about why I didn't read things by black female authors. So I would just go to the library and I found Zora Neale Hurston and I just started fighting other writers and my mom would give me a lot of books. And that's how I started probably cultivating being an artist, just being influenced by those early writers. But I feel like, yeah, when you're part of this mainstream thing, you're ne- you never question why you just accept and because I was so different I would always I would always ask why and it would be really annoying you know you know the teachers because I would just do things to be like well I did my report on Jackie Robinson because he's black and I'm black because I felt like in order for me to like know about myself and my history and my origins that I would have to take it upon myself or else I would never really know all the things that happened to before that are influencing this moment in time that I'm living in and that was like a big thing for me. I think I'm kind of like realizing things that I'm talking to, but like, um, because my uncle was a history teacher, I just had like, I just had like a lot of influence about like how stories are told in history. And I just became very aware of like wanting to create my own narrative, like not wanting someone else to tell my story because most of the times when people talked about me or referenced me, it was through their viewpoint and it was always wrong. And I, I just used to sit there and be like, is that what you really think of me? Like, do you, do you think, do you think that I have feelings? Do you think that I'm a person? It used to make me upset. And then also, you know, when I started working with these storytellers in Eastern Europe and, and helping craft their stories, I started realizing again how important it was for people to own their story because these are people that live through it. Otherwise, we'd be having American movies like Rocky where, you know, the perspective of the Cold War and Russians was through that perspective. And you saw Russians as a certain way versus like when I actually went over there, it was a whole different experience than seeing Rocky Balboa like run through the woods and doing pull-ups, you know what I mean? Yeah. This goes back to why it's so important that we have different storytellers. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you just keep getting that same viewpoint over and over. And listening to you talk about this is so interesting to me because I'm really seeing all these dots connect and seeing these patterns and themes emerge in your life that are contributing to the kind of work that you're making today as a storyteller and an artist, which leads me to my next question, because when I look at your work, it is so Avita. There is just something so you in it. It's so consistent throughout everything you make, whether it's a still photo or whether it's a music video you've done or it's a film you've done. There's something in the light. There's something just in the people, everything. As a creative person, to me, I think that is the ultimate thing, to be able to create a vision, a voice, and a style that is so unrecognizably you. For me, as a photographer, when people see my work and don't even know it's me that did it, but they know I did it, like that to me is like the ultimate compliment. I always know you. Like that's Grace's work. (laughs) I mean, for people, especially starting out, I think this is a struggle. How do you think you developed this very unique 
look and feel that you have? I think, honestly, I I turned off the part of my brain that was worried about what people thought. And I also didn't let it define me. So if I make a project, I, I, I don't think, I guess maybe not doing it for recognition or letting success define you as a person, I think frees you up. Because then everything doesn't have weight. You can just make things. And plus, I'm obsessed with seeing if something works. (laughs) Like, I'll get into the process. Like, sometimes I'll just say to myself, let's just see if this works. Like, can I film something underneath water? Let's just see if it works, you know? Um, And just the idea of, like, having an idea. Like, if you have an idea about filming underwater and not saying, like, oh, this is dumb, you know? Just if it came to you, it came to you for a reason. And to just try it and... And get into the practice of sharing. Like, there's this wonderful writer. Her name is Julia Cameron, and she has a book called The Artist's Way. This woman's book has come up on like every episode I've done. <laughs> no, she's really great because I feel like yeah. I feel like she like we were talking about in terms of the podcast relating creativity to spirituality. She's someone who communicates those ideas to even people who don't think about spirituality or energy at all. And tapping into your inner consciousness, like she has this practice where you get up and do morning pages. Like as soon as you wake up, you just start writing because once your thinking brain starts rationalizing and getting involved, it's over. And I think also studying clown, I had a, a directing teacher who, it sounds a little a little strange, you know, because at first he was like, I was like, you know, burnout, what should I be working on this summer? And he was like, I just think you should be meditating and you need to go to clown school. <laughs> I know. And I was like, so livid, Grace. I was like, why would he tell me to go to clown school? Does he think I'm a clown? And then he like sent me the link there in class. And I like went on there. I was like tightening all heavy. And the next day I came back and I was like, I signed up. The reason why I say that with creativity is because clown teaches you to turn your brain off and it starts teaching you embodiment. And what I learned from that practice, clowning is a theatrical practice that's been in the world for like thousands of years. It's like a, a tool used in theater because clowns always tell the truth because comedians, for some reason, the audience accepts whatever they say. Like they can say the most, the craziest things and it'll be truth. And that's how the message will get put across. But a clown, like when I was studying clown, they would just always emphasize like keeping it simple and stupid and not thinking. And it just freed me up in every area of my life, especially filmmaking. So I always tell that to people like, keep it simple, keep it stupid. And my teacher calls it kiss. And if you do that and you keep your rational thinking brain out of it, I feel like you can do anything because the rational thinking brain gets involved and starts being like, is this good? Will people like it? And that's like the opposite of what you want. And also clowning taught me to withstand long periods of being uncomfortable in front of people because it, it teaches you to, to sing your truth or tell your truth to people and look them in the face. Because the practice is to come in and you sing, you make up songs based in feelings and you put it in your body and then you communicate it to each person in front of you. And if you said something basic like, I hate traffic in LA, they'd be like, get off the stage, you know? <laughs> I developed this practice of singing my feelings out to people. And the first couple times I was dying, Grace, I was like, where's the shovel so I can bury myself? <laughs> But then, like, I didn't die. So I always tell people, you're not going to die. Like, once you do the jump a first couple of times, you get so used to it that even if people at some point start saying that they don't like it, you don't take it personal. You'd be like, oh, it's something I tried. And sometimes you can see that that feedback or people not liking it. You can take it as, like, feedback if it hits you in a certain way. If not, you can just let it go. But sometimes someone might be like, you know, I was feeling this, but this kind of bumps for me. So maybe next time I'll be like... Let me go a little easy on the strobe. You know what I mean? I love that you did this because to me, the idea of clowning, I didn't even know it was called clowning, but the idea of doing clowning is like my worst nightmare. Yeah. Like you're so brave for doing that. And huh. what you just said is so interesting because you built up resilience to it. Mm-hmm. Like for me, the idea of doing a podcast was like clowning. It was mm. so 
freaking unbelievably scary. And I have done so many interviews now at this point. Well, not so many, but like, I don't know, six interviews. And, you know, it's not as scary anymore. Like maybe at some point I'll work my way up to clowning. But what I find really interesting about purposely doing things that are scary and make you uncomfortable is that it pushes your edges out so that that thing that was so scary to you is not scary anymore. And then now you can find something else that you find a little bit scary and overcome that thing and just keep going with it. Which is funny. Yeah, which is something I did. I love that you said that because I didn't realize that's what I was doing. But um, I guess I started singing lessons and I've always loved to sing even though I didn't need to be singing in public. You know what I mean? But then I started doing that. But I I guess going back to clowning and, and you even talking about your podcast, I feel that those things start influencing your work because I feel like everything you do is related. Yeah, it really is. So one of the things that I talk about on the show a lot is being scrappy. You know, we talked about this already. Just you don't have to go to film school. I love that you just took your iPhone, you made this video and BET bought it, showcased it, gave you $500 for it. And what I think is amazing, too, is that you've continued with that work. You are continuously making amazing work with your iPhone and you've gotten a crap ton of recognition from it. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? You actually inspired me a lot too, Grace, because you did a whole, your whole plant series with the iPhone. Oh my gosh, people don't know what this is. So I started, (laughs) uh, I think you guys know by now, like I just make random stuff because it makes me happy. So when I say you guys, I mean the listeners. Yeah, I started taking pictures of plants with my iPhone while going on my morning walks with my dogs. And for me, it was really about just shooting something in a way that other people might not see it. You know, it's like something so ordinary, like a fern or a leaf, but capturing it in a way that's a little bit different and then doing it with my iPhone. And I think a lot of people are surprised by the fact that it was shot with an iPhone. And mm-hmm. so I started a whole Instagram page. It's called iPhone Plants. And it's just these plant pictures I take with my iPhone. I didn't know that. That's so cool that you you were inspired by that. Totally, because I didn't know. I think I didn't. I didn't know. I was like, was it really your iPhone? And you were like, yeah. And um, I, I just I just started being like, well, it's something I have. So I started shooting with my iPhone a lot. And my first videos, I'm not going to lie, they weren't great at all. You know, it was just like me and my friends doing um, stuff. But I feel like that started informing the work. It's so funny because I remember I would just be out in the street, like with my friends or by myself making things. And I remember at one point asking myself, like, what am I doing? You know? I was like, I'm just out here on Crenshaw Boulevard and the Mert Park making dance videos with my friend. And then um, probably like, I guess one of my bigger breaks was I had a meeting and I thought that, you know, the artist was just going to look at my website. But then he was looking at my Instagram and he liked all the, at first I was like, I wanted to dive across the room and like shut, you know take the phone and like throw it, you know, and be like, no, but he said, I like this. I want this. It was what you did with your iPhone. Yeah. (laughs) It was all this stuff. It was very culturally specific. It was like in the Mert Park during a drum circle. And me and my friends took it upon ourselves to make a like, I don't know. It was like interpretive dance, you know, but it was just like a poetic video about, I guess, how I felt about the Mert Park. And I think that's when it hit me that I was just like, he didn't go to the stuff that was with, you know, my more sophisticated equipment. So then um, from there, people who knew my work with this person started, like really high level people started just bringing me in to make things with my iPhone. And the other great thing about it too was that they let me be me. I think I probably got kind of spoiled in that way because... If someone else wanted to work with me, they would tell them, like, just leave her alone. Just let her do what she needs to do and come back at the end. And I, yeah, I feel like I was in this place from, you know, being myself and doing my iPhone work that I naturally gravitated around people who, like, saw me and didn't want to intervene on the process. So I feel like from an artistic and financial aspect, I was feeling like I hit the jackpot because I was with people who like really understood me and and accepted me and accepted the way that I work. And so I feel like that is true for anyone out there listening who feels like they're being told that one way is the only way. I always say like, I feel like one of the biggest things you can do as an artist is to spend time with yourself and anything that you're curious about or you like, just try it. 
and and not make it like a life death or situation because part of just being an artist is like the daily practice. It's like if you play basketball, you dribble, you do dribble drills. If you're a musician, you do you do scales every day. And I think that's the same way with art. It's the way I approach working with different tools. Is like even later today, you know, I'm I'm working with a friend just to like test things out, and then I'll probably use that method somewhere later. You know what I mean? But I I think just the idea of being yourself and using what's around you, you you find people that you belong with that understand you. I totally agree with that. And to back up for a second, mm-hmm. don't be so humble, okay? Because when you say you you had high level meetings with people and you did stuff with your iPhone, let's talk about some of this because it was some big stuff like Spotify. Yeah, like that was super amazing because that was the first professional job where, okay, keep in mind, I was coming from this mindset of being out with my iPhone and, you know, being very conscious about money. And I just had a cheerleader. It was was this guy named Byron, and he followed me on Instagram. And he had gotten, I guess, some edict about bringing in women directors to tell the stories of women musicians. And he, I guess he'd just been following me on my Instagram. My Instagram was not curated at all. It was just like sometimes me just doing crazy stuff. So he brings me in, and anything I wanted... Like, he would just tell me, like, no, you don't have to think about how much it costs. That's my job. Oh, my God. Dream job. What'd you say? I said dream job. Right. He was like, do you want a drone? He's like, what do you... And, like, it was so... Like, at first, it was, like, really challenging. It was, was like, great. Like, I was so happy, but it was, like, it was funny because it was, like, I had to make this jump mentally from going to, like, Indie World to, like, a big corporation that was supporting you. But, yeah, it it was so great. And then I just ended up... I got to work with these great musicians like Dej Loaf and um, SZA and talk about what they were feeling like when they were making the album. And I was out there with giant crews, like 40 people or more. And I was used to just being by myself. I mean, like being by myself with my camera. So that's another reason why I always, I always say, you know, to be yourself because he literally, he literally could have called anybody, but he was just like, this came up and I just knew I was like, I'm following your Instagram. I just knew this was like, this was you. And then like, he just always fought for me. Um, like, cause I wanted to use some vintage lenses and they weren't sure, you know, like, Oh, what's it going to look like? But he would be like, no, I want her to do her style and her thing. If, if that's what she says she needs, that's what she needs. And it was just like having, it was just like a real empowering feeling to, to have that kind of support behind like who you are as a person. Yeah. And then you also did a, a trailer for a, a, a film from Fox. Right? And you did a music video for Cody Chestnut. This is all with your iPhone? Yeah, yeah, with my iPhone. That's amazing. And so encouraging, I think, for listeners to know that you took a tool that most of us have around us all the time Mm -hmm. and you turned it into something incredible and got paid for it. Yeah. So, okay, girl, let's talk about money. Okay. okay? (laughs) Because that's sort of the distinction between having a hobby. Mm-hmm. versus having a career, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So how did you start learning how to charge for your work? Like at first it was like, um, I think there's kind of like a learning curve when you're starting because as artists, we can be sensitive to, um, at least depending on what kind of artist you are, moving from the hobby life to professional. Because for me, you know, sometimes I was using my iPhone, I'd be like, do I really charge for this? Because this is stuff I already do, you know? The other point to this too, just... To like clarify for people is that like I had gone to film school and I was out of film school and part of me using my iPhone or doing photography was keeping a, a daily practice of keeping a visual language because when you first got a film school, it's, it's not the kind of thing where someone's calling you to be like, oh, I want you to direct Spider-Man. So yeah, I think that it was kind of a learning curve and that when I first started, I was like, like undercharging and then... um. And, and then it kind of like grew to a, a manager and he was the one that introduced me to the concept of like how valuable is my time. And then around that time I met, like this is also through Instagram, it's just I met like different high level people at, at agencies and sometimes I would just be out meeting them and I didn't even know what anyone did. Like I made a video, uh, like a birthday iPhone video for someone who was like the major head of a magazine. You didn't know who they were? I had no idea who they were. And then afterwards he was just like, when he told me, I was like, I had questions. He was like, oh, well, you have, you need to charge people just to even be in your space. 
And that was like wow. a whole new concept. And he said, what I thought was interesting was like, especially with men is how they, it, it wasn't like this thing where they thought like, should I be saying this? You know what I mean? Is this wrong? He was just like, I don't care what you're using or what equipment you're using. He's like, people are coming to you for what you do and how you do it. He's like, make them pay for it. And I think that's kind of like maybe a block for me because I guess maybe I was one of those people that kind of, even though I was the way that I was, even though I, even though I accepted myself, it wasn't like the rest of the world like embraced me. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I'm kind of scared to um to put it into practice. But like during that time, I was definitely working with people where they were calling me and they were just like, "What do you want? Like, we'll we'll, we'll give it to you. We'll just tell us what you want." You know? So I think it's you know an important part of like talking about money or and deciding what to charge is how valuable is your time. And seeing creativity as a spiritual force and possibly being part of your life force, which is connected to money, it sounds kind of strange, but like, how much is your soul worth? Oh. Are these people I want to give my soul to? You know, is this a situation where I want to give my soul to? You know what I mean? Like, start asking questions like that. I think once you start getting real specific about the kinds of stuff you want to do and who you want to be with and how you want to do, it gets easier, even if it like offends people, you know, but you'll just sleep better at night. But did you feel like in the beginning, especially like you had to take on work you didn't really want to do just because of the money? I think because of the person I was, I I honestly, and just like my work was, and this is a choice that I made as an artist. I think that's something to be conscious of too. Just being aware of like who you are and what that means. Like I just didn't have people that were coming to me to do like like a, a yogurt thing. You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense. It does. No. And, and I think that it, it plays into what your work looks like. And it's such an, a specific expression of you. Right. And I, I had a lot of different things that I'd, I'd always be doing at one time. So I, I don't think that I went into thinking like, oh, photography is the thing is like my bread and butter in the situation. You know what I mean? I think that's another reason why I ended up doing so many things. You know what I mean? It's because I kind of knew that about myself, you know, because also being someone that developed script writers, like I was just also helping people develop scripts, but because I had a a visual background, it's like I could help them write more actively. So I think sometimes just being an artist is just being creative about all the different things that you can do. Because one thing that I found being an artist, especially in Los Angeles, is that like, if people like you, they make up a reason to have you. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like literally that's like what happened to me. They'd be like, I just like working with you. So I'm just going to like make up a project or make up a position for you. It speaks again, like we keep going back to this, but I just feel like it speaks so deeply to you being so unabashedly yourself Mm. and you end up becoming this life force that people want to work with and be around. There's so much power in that. You saying that I feel like is also a message maybe I like to communicate to people that feel like they're different Mm -hmm. because I feel like when you're different and you're by yourself, you don't necessarily see or feel that possibility. Yeah. But- I think as we grow into to an adult, I enjoy being around other people that put me at ease and make me feel good about myself. And usually those are people that feel good about themselves, about who they are. That is so true. And I think in a way, the point of this podcast, in the sense that if you feel good about yourself and you feel as fulfilled creatively as you can be, it's so much easier to support other people in that way, too. I think the worst critics are actually the most blocked creative people, to be honest. <laughs> no, you're, what you're saying is so true. I love Glennon Doyle. And she says something like she's always made friends by sharing weaknesses. She's never made a friend by someone sharing their strengths. I think that when you're uncomfortable with yourself, you tend to start wanting to give reasons to people like why they should be around you. Like, oh, did you happen to know that I am so-and-so-and-so? But when people share like a vulnerability, I feel like it allows you to identify with them and to come closer. So then what do you think is your biggest struggle right now doing what you're doing? I think sometimes my biggest struggle is I've always had a problem with bragging or talking about myself in a way. I've always been in a situation where people just called me. I never had to like promote myself or do anything like that. I used to just think it was disgusting. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. why would I prostitute myself? But I feel like there's something to be said about being able to communicate why you're good. And yes, you should pay me this much. The time I had to take to answer this email (laughs) is expensive. 
I think that that can be a hurdle that I, I would like to become stronger at. It's just like putting myself out there more and, and just having more of the confidence to say, this is how much I'm, I'm worth. And then just hang up because I feel like the times that I have done that, you know, I got pushed back and maybe didn't develop the, the resilience with it that I have with other things. And maybe the, another thing too is like when I have really strong feelings, it can be like a little overwhelming. So I will, I think I'll just put up blocks in some kind of way to not have to deal with that person. Avoid the person and the confrontation, you mean? No, like I'll have conversations with people when I feel like they care about me and I care about them. But like sometimes if it's like an overwhelming thing, I really care about that person. I won't necessarily express it all the way because I don't really want to rock the boat per se. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I can keep things closer to the chest, but I think there's something to be said to just rock the boat in that way and, and let the chips fall where they may. So it, it has to do with making yourself smaller to make the other person feel okay and comfortable. Mm, that's so interesting you say that, Grace. I feel like that's my block. Thank you, Grace. Oh my God, this is like a coaching session right now. No, no, you always do that. I feel like probably that's the biggest thing hurdle I had to get over is I do that a lot in situations. I don't know why it's, it's comfortable for me, but it's uncomfortable for me to make myself bigger around someone. I relate. I I just posted about this on Instagram not too long ago about how this is a specific hurdle that I'm overcoming. And honestly, I think this is relatable to most women. We've been taught to be small and stay quiet, Mm -hmm. not speak up for ourselves, not rock the boat. And now Mm -hmm. that we're having these conversations and being aware of it, it's like the whole G.I. Joe thing, like knowing is half the battle. How can you not make even a little change in yourself being aware of the fact that you did this? or that you are like this. It's true. I think for women, we've dealt with major consequences. It wasn't like we were born this way. (laughs) I feel like through our personal experiences and seeing other experiences of women, whether in person or just in the media, how women are treated, that it becomes like an unconscious effort and just even the way other women will even treat you. Because I feel like the paradigm of the way that we were living is that sometimes I feel like women have this like pick me, choose me attitude with men. I think sometimes even other women look at other women and they'll be like, well, if I put her down, then they'll see me as like an asset. Mm-hmm. I think having an awareness and maybe compassion and, and being aware of it. And I feel like men being aware of it, because hopefully in the next generation, I feel like it's got to be like a generational thing where we start implementing the idea of girls using their voices at a very young age. Because I feel like, you know, it starts very young. Yes, that is so true. And by the way, I just want to say, I really appreciate you being so honest and vulnerable about this. Because honestly, from the outside, no one would think you would have this in you feeling this way. You know, you're so accomplished. Your work has such a strength to it. Like just this very strong visual language, themes and For you to be so honest about sharing that struggle, I just really appreciate it because it's so relatable. Like we all struggle with that no matter the level of success that we've had. Oh my gosh, no problem. Thank you for having me on here to share those things because my hope is in every encounter is to encourage and empower, especially another woman, because I know growing up for me that I had to discover a lot of things the hard way on my own because I didn't see images of women or women of color as artists. So I feel like there wasn't that path or a way to go or the idea of knowing how to be creative or be an artist, I feel like is learned and has to be taught. And the more I could probably help someone else on their way and avoid some of the things that I went through, Because I love what you were saying earlier about the feminine essence, because that's what I found is true a lot about creativity, is that creativity can be a gestation period and it needs nurturing and patience, and that it's important to have a community or at least one person that nurtures that in you and allows for mistakes, quote unquote mistakes. Yes. And that's really the whole essence of this podcast. Mm -hmm. And really also the Facebook community too. You know, Mm. I just want to, I think for us to hold space for each other Mm. to do this kind of work, I think is so important. And I feel like spirituality has come up a little bit here and there in this talk that we've had. Mm -hmm. Are you a spiritual person? Definitely. And what does that mean? What does being a spiritual person mean to you? To me, it's acknowledging a force greater than yourself, (laughs) no matter what name you have for it, whether it's God or Allah. I have 
a belief in a force outside of myself. And I, I believe that force is also in me. And I mean, people who are just strict, even to the Bible, you know, it talks about this. And I call it the book of Thomas. And he says, if you bring forth what's inside of you, what's inside of you will save you. Mm. And they talk about like the kingdom being inside of you. So I always just feel that when you honor that, that essence or that spirit of you, like you will never be led astray. Oh, that is so beautiful. And we've been friends for 10 years now. Uh-huh. And I have watched your career blossom from you were an actress when I met you. And just over the last decade, your career has skyrocketed. And it's been so fun to watch it and to celebrate it. And I just feel like you make turning dreams into reality look so easy. What do you do? How can others do that? You know, to be honest, it's not an easy process. Like there are sometimes, yes, where it can be really fun. Like the actual process of doing things is fun. But I think to be a creative person, a rigorous self-inquiry needs to be done. Otherwise, you can do art, but you'll be making a lot of surface things. So I don't know if it's just our culture that maybe has this idea of things looking, you know, shiny and easy. I think if people are really paying attention or looking, especially like honoring artists, you'd start to see what their daily life and practice is like. I don't think like being an engineer or being a doctor is necessarily you know, easy either. You know what I mean? So I think that's just like an interesting question because I feel like the, the path that was called to me or that I chose, I don't know. Like it's so, they, the things that they tell you, there's just so many things that are never told to you when you start that I wonder sometimes if any artist knew if they would ever start. For instance, the way we grew up in school and learned that if you... If you get your high school diploma, if you get your college degree, you'll graduate, you'll meet someone in college, you'll get married and have a job and have a kid and you'll live happily ever after. That's not true for anyone in any profession, you know? But (laughs) it's doubly true for artists. Like there's nothing that says if you go to school or if you don't go to school and you get into this art field and all of a sudden you're a successful artist, I feel like the idea is just realizing that everything is a process and having a daily practice I think being an artist is like just using a different part of your brain. Or, and I feel like the more one cultivates that through paying attention to their feelings and to following their curiosity <laughs> and to not judging themselves is the clearest path that makes it look easy. Because when you accept yourself and shit is going awry and left, it's like... You can just see it as part of the process. Like, I feel this way now, but I won't feel this way forever. It doesn't define who I am. It's just kind of a thing that's happening right now. Like, you just start to see things in cycles. Whereas I feel like when you're using the other part of your brain, you tend to, like, judge things and criticize things and need to have things always make sense. But as an artist, I think the biggest thing is just, it's kind of kind of cheesy, but like loving whatever arises or whatever comes or whatever curiosity you have following it. And because we haven't lived in a culture or a paradigm before that, you know, supported that, just making a firm commitment to yourself to being an artist and doing that, I feel like is one of like the quote unquote straightest paths and the ways that look most easy because when you're not judging yourself, you're just not looking at yourself in that way. If something looks easy or not easy, it's just you are. If we were together right now, I'd be giving you high fives and a hug because that was so poignant and so truthful. So thank you for sharing that because that truly is, I think, the straightest path to living a fulfilling creative life. I have one last question for you. How do you want people to remember this episode? Oh, wow. I would want people to remember this episode and to take away that being who you are is enough. And starting with being who you are and what you have around you and accepting yourself is the first path to a creative life. Thank you so much, Evita. You are truly one of my most favorite people in the entire world. And I'm so blessed to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm so blessed to be here. And I'm so blessed to know you. When you talk about us being in the cafe doing high fives, like those are some of my best moments. (laughs) We're sitting with you and talking about books and like high fiving. I 
don't know. It's just been really, really fun. So I'm so, so glad we got to talk today because you really, really inspired me just from like your essence. Because I just remember like 10 years ago, you'd make a list of things you want to do. And then I'd see you the next time and they were like checked off. But I think you were like a lot of the, the catalyst for me about taking the jump because you told your story about going from being an art director to a pet photographer and... I think you were like the first person I met or like actually knew that did something like that. And it just gave me a lot of courage. So thank you. Oh, Avita, thank you. I, I truly am so thankful for our friendship. And I'm thankful that you are on the show today. I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Grace. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review the show on iTunes and share it with a friend. Don't be shy. Reach out to me anytime online and I will catch you next week on the next episode.